this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast i'm anand krishnan your host for today in this episode we are examining the rise of what's been called china's wolf warrior diplomacy referring to an increasingly assertive brand of fiery diplomacy from many of beijing's diplomats and foreign envoys is this new diplomacy a change in merely style or also a change in substance what does history tell us about how domestic political trends in china shape beijing's external behavior and what do these changes mean for countries like india and their relations with china we are joined by peter martin journalist and author of the new book China's Civilian Army the making of wolf warrior diplomacy thank you so much peter for joining us today thanks so much for having me peter to begin with a question that's fairly obvious that i think many of our listeners would like to know could you shed some light for us on how exactly this wolf warrior term came into being as well as its origins and of course why it interested you so much yeah of course so uh, there was this blockbuster movie that came out in 2017 about this chinese action hero kind of fighting foreign bad guys on the continent of africa um and uh, you know avenging china's enemies and it was this unexpected uh you know commercial success um uh, the highest grossing movie ever at the chinese box office and it came to kind of symbolize this like new mood in beijing where china was going to stand up for its interests um you know it was confident on the world stage and it came of course at the same time as the trump administration uh was seen to be kind of shaking uh some of the united states status and uh you know in the following years chinese diplomats really started to follow that lead as well uh in some cases shouting at foreign counterparts storming out of international meetings name calling and in the end the, the term was applied to them too so peter it seemed if i remember right at some point were there people who were embracing this term given that i guess for many people in china it connoted something positive as you mentioned from this movie somebody standing up for china but then it seemed that it's somehow evolved into something that some officials in beijing seem to resent as your book highlights as well yeah i think it's it's kind of a mixed bag i would say on the whole um chinese diplomats and officials as far as i can tell don't like the term very much because you know from their perspective uh the you know the the US administration and its allies have kind of ganged up on China and they feel criticized for their economic policies and their human rights records and so you know from 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 their view they're just kind of standing up for China's interests and they see this wolf warrior label as just a form of name calling um i think though that quite a lot of chinese citizens like the label they like the idea that okay now china's time has come and uh, our government is standing up for us and you know perhaps in the past they think it was a little bit too weak and now they think that 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 level of assertiveness is appropriate you know i really did enjoy your new book that's just out china civilian army 
which I thought made a really persuasive case for how so many things that we see today and we think are completely new actually do have this sense of continuity going back to 1949. And we'll come to that history in just a bit. But before we get to that, I was just curious, Peter, I think a lot of the media reporting sort of sees this wolf warrior emergence coinciding with the Xi Jinping era, starting in around late 2012, early 2013. How much of this do you think is down to the change in leadership we saw in Beijing? And how much of it do you think is maybe a result of broader trends? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I guess I kind of think of Xi Jinping as both a cause and a consequence of changes that have taken place in China. So, you know, this this new assertive turn in Chinese diplomacy really started in 2008 and nine in the wake of the global financial crisis. China had just hosted the Olympics. Uh, the West's response to the financial crisis was sluggish and China's was very, very decisive. Um, in the ensuing years, China watched Western political systems deal with gridlock at home while its own economic growth um, continued. And um, then most recently during the coronavirus pandemic. And so, you know, there is this, there are these trends taking place in China that are quite independent of Xi Jinping. But I think what Xi did was take a more confident and assertive tone and kind of um, uh, accelerate it and make it make it more decisive and more permanent. Um, so in terms in terms of foreign policy, I think you know like some of that's driven by Xi, and and to, you know Xi is also a consequence of uh, of the changes underlying in China. And you do mention Peter how post two thousand eight, leading up to even twenty twelve. There was this debate uh, going around in Beijing: Should they continue this uh, the Deng Xiaoping era maxim uh, of hiding brightness, biding time? And it seemed that there were a lot of people who felt that that was in China's interest to do that. But at the same time, it seemed there was a growing chorus of people who said, "You know, enough of that. That was for a different era." Could you shed some light on how uh, you saw that debate, even during your time in Beijing, in that? critical period from 2008 onwards. And do you think that that debate has kind of been resolved in one way right now? I, I actually, I think the debate is still ongoing um, uh, beneath the surface. Although, you know, in, in, in public, um, Xi Jinping and those who, who, who want to continue this very brash, assertive tone have certainly um, won out. Um, there are large parts of China's uh, scholarly community on foreign affairs and, and in fact, some people in the foreign ministry who would still like China to take a quieter, uh, more humble approach to, to foreign policy. I don't know that those people necessarily think that returning to the policy of the 1990s is realistic. You know, there's a, there's a refrain I heard quite a lot in, in Beijing, uh, you can't hide an elephant. And the idea is that, you know, China has, has gotten too big uh, to really take that kind of low profile that it had in the past. But, but I think there are a lot of people who are very uncomfortable with this um, you know, kind of this, this trend of like picking apparently unnecessary fights and, you know, insulting foreign counterparts. I think that one of the arguments that you make, I thought, quite persuasively in your book is that you can't really understand many of the things we, we sort of read uh, Chinese officials saying. Sometimes you're scratching your head and wondering if it's counterproductive. Uh, you make the case that a lot of it is actually 
tied to what happens domestically in China, uh, to China's political system, a lot of it that goes back to 1949 and the early years. Uh, and in many ways, you describe how China's diplomatic core is very unique. Could you speak a little bit about that? I, I found it fascinating, the fact that uh, going back to 1949 and Zhou Enlai, they even looked at the PLA as kind of a model for their diplomatic core. So how did that sort of begin to evolve? Yeah, so I kind of I see China's diplomatic culture as as kind of a response to um, quite a unique challenge that China faced in 1949. Um, this new communist state basically had no diplomats. It had kicked out all of the KMT nationalist diplomats who had stayed behind. It had a small band of officials who had been with China's first foreign minister, Zhou Enlai, for a couple of decades. But apart from that, its diplomatic corps was made up of a you know, group of ragtag peasant revolutionaries um, and fresh university graduates. And, and it had this huge need to go out and communicate with the world. You know, China didn't have any friends or allies outside of the Soviet bloc. But it also was very fearful about regime survival and very, very paranoid about foreign influence um, and, and the, the potential for its newfound rule over China to be undone. <clears throat> and so Zhou Enlai, the first foreign minister and kind of the, the founding father of Chinese diplomacy, came up with this approach where he said, well, OK, we, you know, we don't know how to be diplomats, but we know how to fight battles. And so why don't you model yourselves on the People's Liberation Army? And so that's what he said, you know, act like the People's Liberation Army in civilian clothing. And what that means is, as, as you know very well, is unfailing loyalty to the Communist Party, strict adherence to discipline, you know, an ability to display a fighting spirit when necessary. And so this, this culture... Uh, this kind of militaristic culture grew up around Chinese diplomats, really in a response to that need to both communicate with the world, but also be incredibly cautious about how they dealt with it. Well, there were a lot of uh, fascinating insights as well. Uh, one of the interesting things that I could relate to is you mentioned that even starting from 1949, one of the things that continues till today is the fact that, for instance, you rarely have Chinese diplomats who would meet foreigners one-on-one, on, one on one. they would always meet in twos. Uh, and you sort of make the point that it kind of ties into even the Communist Party's own early history, the sense of the fact that it was this underground outfit, there was a sense of paranoia. Uh, how much of that do you think still shapes how China's diplomatic core functions? In many ways, is it different from what, say, our listeners would imagine a, a diplomatic core to be because of the fact that they happen to also represent one particular political party? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely crucial. Um, and Chinese diplomats, you know, lots of them have studied abroad at Georgetown or the London School of Economics, and they've lived for decades in the countries um, where they represent China's interests. And so they can be very, very good at... Um, kind of presenting this image of China's diplomats being, you know, just the same as, as any other countries. But in, in reality, it, it's quite different. And it's a style that one, uh, one of the uh, diplomats who, whose memoir I read, he described the style as controlled openness, which I thought was a really, uh, a really nice way of, of summarizing it. And it's this idea that uh, we have permission 
to communicate a certain amount about our policy stance to you and nothing more. So, you know, uh, from your experience in Beijing, trying to extract information from the daily press conference or even from private meetings with diplomats is, uh, is really like pulling teeth because, you know, the fact is they've got so much that they can tell you. They're not going to tell you anymore. They're not allowed to. And even if they wanted to, they've got a buddy sitting there watching them and monitoring, uh, you know, what goes out. And so it's a, it's a very, very difficult process. And, and I think in truth, that's the China's detriment when it comes to its ability to persuade others of its point of view. And one thing that, uh, that really uh, I made me reflect a lot in terms of uh, looking at the history of how domestic turbulent events in China would shape their foreign policy. Uh, in, you, you have some really stark uh, reporting on the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, and how the diplomats abroad were by no means insulated from what happened. I, I was very interested in, in listening to how you think the current changes in China under Xi Jinping, do you see that in a, in a similar way? Obviously, it's a completely different context from the Cultural Revolution or even the Great Leap Forward. But do you see that in a way shaping uh, how China's diplomacy is being conducted by its diplomats who have to, for example, respond to this more muscular rhetoric that's, that's happening at home? Yeah, you know, I think um, in Chinese diplomacy, domestic politics is always king. And there's kind of been this pattern um, over the decades when, you know, when when China wants to take the considerable discipline and expertise of its diplomatic corps and charm the world, um, and that's the, leadership, this, the, the direction that the leadership sets, it can be very, very effective in doing so. But when Chinese politics kind of turns in on itself, starts embracing purges and ideological study sessions, um, you know, cult of personality around leaders, those periods in history tend to produce also a very combative uh, style of diplomacy that that alienates a lot of people outside of China. And, you know, we we kind of look on with bewilderment sometimes and think, um, you know, why, why are they possibly doing this? Because these are the people who are charged with improving China's reputation. In truth, we're not the audience. They're doing this to signal to people in Beijing that they are loyal to the regime, they're loyal to Mao or Xi Jinping or whoever is in charge. And, you know, foreign audiences are really a kind of byproduct there. That's a really interesting point. Um, it seems that maybe even 10 years ago, maybe their brief was to, uh, around the time of the Olympics and leading up to that, was to kind of present an image of a peaceful rise of a likable China. But it seems now maybe a big part of their brief is to also, in some ways, play to the gallery at home. And I have to ask you about uh, the ch current Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, Zhao Lijian, who I think maybe for many listeners uh, and followers of this is, is, is in some ways emblematic of this wolf warrior approach. Uh, what have you made of him in, in, in particular, his, his rise up the ranks? Uh, do you think that he symbolizes this moment perhaps as, as, as well as anyone else does? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, Zhao is kind of the, the best representative of that um, 
history, you know, what historically we might, we might think of as wolf warrior tactics. Obviously the name, the name didn't exist until a few years ago, but we've seen wolf warrior tactics from, you know, the early 1950s, from the cultural revolution, when Chinese diplomats literally wielded axes in the streets of London, um, you know, and, uh, and, and we see them again now. And Zhao is probably the clearest example of, of that kind of style. You know, he went from being a relatively obscure diplomat posted to Islamabad, um, who got himself in a Twitter spat with former national security advisor, uh, Susan Rice, and was kind of rocketed to fame and eventually appointed um, foreign ministry spokesperson. And, and he has, you know, experimented with spreading conspiracy theories about the US with, uh, you know, insulting foreign countries, uh, tweeting uh, doctored images, um, you know, of Australian troops, uh, torturing others and all kinds of provocative things. And uh, yeah, he, he, I think in my mind kind of symbolizes uh, the, 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 the furthest extent of where wolf warriorism has, has reached under Xi. Finally, Peter, in terms of uh, us trying to evaluate whether or not this approach uh, is currently successful, uh, you make the point that it's good maybe at expressing China's demands. But if diplomacy is the art of getting the other side to do what you want them to do while having them believe it's in their own interest, that, uh, on that, uh, if you want to evaluate it by that measure, how would you say these current tactics work? Uh, is it a case that it might work? Uh, for a lack of a better word, when it comes to smaller countries that don't want to offend China? Or is it your impression that it's it's a mixed bag? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the, current, the current tactics are really quite effective when it comes to connecting with certain um, groups of political elites um, across the world. So I think of, you know, Viktor Orban's Hungary, Vladimir Putin's Russia, uh, to some extent, uh, Duterte in the Philippines, uh, there are elites who kind of chafe under U.S. leadership and and wish that uh, you know the United States and its its friends and partners would would kind of keep their opinions to themselves. And I think that wolf warrior tactics are really quite effective at, at communicating with them. But uh, you know, in in the grand scheme of things, I find it really hard to come up with any kind of net positive assessment of it. Um, you know, you can see it's one of the factors which has contributed to this incredible decline in global perceptions of, of China uh, in Pew polling that you'll have seen recently. Um, it It's also, uh, you know, it's solidified even, even before Biden came back, uh, the EU was getting tougher on China. Britain was getting tougher on China. Um, you know, the Quad was becoming a more meaningful um, grouping in the Pacific. The Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, NATO, were all starting to take a more cohesive approach toward PRC foreign policy. And I think, you know, Wolf Warrior diplomacy has contributed to that. And, you know, in, in my mind, actually, India is perhaps the best example of where it, uh, this approach has kind of backfired. You know, Wolf Warrior tactics combined with, of course, great military assertiveness on the China-India border has ended up um, pushing India much closer to the United States and alienating a you know, billion plus 
person economy, an emerging power on the global stage with good relations with the United States and that shares a border with China. And, and to me, there's no better example of that kind of counterproductive approach than, than what's going on there. And finally, Peter, you did mention that in some ways the debate in China is still ongoing. Uh, recently, a lot was made of Xi Jinping's comments about uh, changing how China was seen in the rest of the world. In your view, is the wolf warrior approach, given the domestic currents in China, is it something that's here to stay? I, I think it's it's hard to see it disappearing in the <clears throat> in the short to medium term. You know, Xi Jinping did give this set of remarks recently at a Politburo study session where he talked about China needing to put forward a more lovable image in the world. And and as we discussed, you know, there have been these incredible periods of, of, of where China has has charmed outside opinion and and really improved its image um, using diplomacy as a tool. But you know, she followed those remarks up with kind of a, a pretty blood curdling speech um, for the Communist Party's hundredth anniversary celebrations, and um, it hasn't really been combined with any softening of policy. Uh, you know, from China's you know, use of re-education camps in Xinjiang to the clampdown in Hong Kong uh, and, and Xi Jinping's likely uh, quest for a third term as president. And, and, and without some shift in those underlying policies, which are um, upsetting elites in the West and, and some uh, alteration of the way that China presents itself in the world and the expectations it sets for deference and respect from others, I find it quite difficult to imagine how Chinese diplomats could take a, a kind of softer approach in that context. Fascinating. Thank you so much again, Peter Martin, author of China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. Thank you so much for speaking with The Hindu today. Thanks for your time. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.